and not vice versa. on to more lessons about God's Word, how to study it, why we trust it, we're going to turn our attention to God Himself. God exists. And our next lesson is going to focus on that item and how we know that. But today we want to ask, what is God like? So you see the title of our lesson, lesson two, is the attributes of God. So our lesson today is going to proceed in three parts. First, we're going to consider how people commonly learn who God is. Second, we'll consider two specific scriptures that tell us about God's attributes. And then third, we'll consider some special application questions. Let's pray now before we continue. Our great God, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word, because without it, we would get so lost Thank you for this special mercy toward us. And thank you that you not only reveal yourself, but you reveal how we can come to be your children, how we can be saved, and how we can be with you forever to behold you in all your beauty. I pray, God, that you'd help me to be able to explain your word now and help the people to meditate on it and apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. So we start with first question about how people learn what God is like. If you were to ask just a random person, most people in the world, and you ask them, what is God like? Consider what they might say. We could brainstorm this. I've come up with some examples. I'm sure you can think of more. What is God like? Well, many people will tell you that he is loving. He is all about love. He loves everybody and would never do anything to cause people to suffer. He certainly won't make people suffer forever in hell. They might say quite the opposite. He is cruel. He's just angry all the time. He's a god of smiting. He doesn't really care for people. I mean, how could he let all the injustice and the wars and the disasters to happen in the world? Oh, god is a cruel, callous god. Well, they might say he's disinterested. Disinterested. He may have created the world, keeps matter holding uh, together, but he doesn't really involve himself in our lives. He's far away. We're on our own. We have to figure out all the answers of life by ourselves. Or someone might say he's all about you. Whatever it is you want from God, God will give it to you because God just wants you to be happy. So unlock the power inside you to make your dreams come true. That's what God's all about. Well, they might say he's an assessing God. You've got to keep him happy. You do something for God, he'll do something for you. And he's going to weigh every life in the balance. If you do more good than bad, he'll bless you. And when you die, he'll let you into heaven. 
Or a sixth possibility is someone will say he is a mystery. All we can know in our lives is what we see in the world. God is outside our world. So we can't know anything about God. In fact, we might we can't even tell whether God exists or not because God as spiritual is totally outside our physical world. Now consider these ideas and many like them. From where do these ideas come? What do you think? Yes, Steve. Right. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's one huge element here. We're looking within for answers about God based on what we feel should be correct or based on our own thinking. Roy, you had your hand up. Right. Yeah, Roy, I think you hit on another um, really huge element in this, is that people, they take true things that the scripture says, but they just, they don't understand it fully, or they haven't, they have a very shallow understanding of what the Bible says about God. Is God loving? Yes. Uh, does God have wrath? Yes. But when we combine these things, just as you were saying, Roy, with what we already think and feel, or what we experience in the world, we can come up with con with concepts about God and what God is like that are actually not true and not biblical. I think you could say that whether we use experience, whether we use our own feelings, or even when we use the Bible in an incomplete way, at the core of these misunderstandings about God is really the flesh. We we have this uh, view towards God that is informed by what our flesh wants or what our flesh feels. And that gives us problems when we're trying to actually understand who God is. Uh, now, I think you know the answer to this next question. Does the Bible say that we can know God by looking within by using reason or by steadying the world and our experiences? Well, not exactly. The Bible does say that God's attributes are on display in creation. Go to Psalm 19, go to Romans 1. The invisible attributes of God are clearly seen, his power, his divine nature. And so there is testimony to God's nature and God's attributes in life. But the problem is, well, there are several problems with our being able to assess this testimony is that first of all man has a rebellious heart and this makes him suppress the truth and twist the truth that comes from these testimonies second of all 
man has a weak and imperfect understanding, not only because of the fall, but also because he's a finite being. So he's often liable to misinterpret the testimony that there is about God in the world. And the third issue is that what God displays in creation is limited. Not all of his attributes are clearly on display in creation. Some of them are, but even those that are are easily misinterpreted by man. So what does man need if man is going to truly know who God is? Well, on the one hand, man needs a new heart so that he's willing to accept the truth when he actually uh, comes to encounter it. But secondly, man needs a more direct, reliable, and complete revelation of God. Man needs a, a, a more direct revelation of God. And God in his mercy has provided this. God has given the Bible. The Bible is the direct revelation of God. It's a special revelation that is even able, by the work of God's Spirit, to give man that new heart that he needs and to open his eyes to see God as God truly is. So here's another fundamental truth that we've got to understand at the beginning of our course. If we really want to know who God is, we must go to what is really the only trustworthy source, the Bible. Just as we said in the last lesson, we must start with the Bible. And if we do that, we will not only learn from the Bible who God really is, but we will also learn how to rightly understand how God reveals himself in the world. Because God does give testimony of himself in the world, but we can't properly understand that testimony. We can't trust our interpretation of that testimony until we go to the Bible. But once we go to the Bible, we can see how God reveals himself through creation, through our consciences, through his providence, and through the keeping of his promises. The Bible is the revelation of God. They're quite literally, the scriptures are quite literally the answer to what is God like? Everything that's revealed in the Bible, whether it's God's interactions with mankind, what God says about himself directly, what we see in the Son of God, Jesus, these all tell us, as far as we're able to understand, who God is. Really, our whole study, our whole course, is going to be an exploration in that question, who is God? And we can't answer this question without the Bible. Because think about it. Some of the things that the Bible reveals about God is his unapproachable nature. God is spirit. No man can see God. He dwells in inapproachable light. If God did not condescend to reveal himself directly to us in the scriptures, we could not know him in, in any even limited sense. But because God has revealed himself in the Bible, we can know him and we can know what he's like. Now, all that being said, I don't want you to misunderstand. The Bible does not tell us everything that there is to know about God. We do not get a, a, um, a knowledge about God in the Bible that makes it so that we can't learn anything else about God. No, indeed. The scriptures themselves say, 2 Chronicles 2, 6, Heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain God. And Psalm 145.3, Great is the Lord, or that is Yahweh. Great is Yahweh and highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. 
In Romans 11.33, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. So there is a, a quality of God that is such that we'll never, right now, and, as I'll, and I'll explain in just a second, we'll never be able to fully comprehend him. And even what we see revealed in the scriptures describing God and his ways is inexhaustible. We pour over these words of the Bible again and again, and we learn more about God. We grow, we rejoice in what we learn about him and, and how we come to know him. But we never arrive. We never reach the end. We never achieve that exhaustive, or exhaustive knowledge of God. Nevertheless, the scriptures are sufficient revelation of God. They are what God has deemed necessary for us to know about himself. They are enough to make us delight in God and delight to pursue him, to know him more. By reading the scriptures, we indeed come to know God, but we don't fully know him. And this is one of the reasons, and you'll remember this from previous Sunday school classes, this is one of the reasons why heaven should be so exciting for believers. Because what's going to happen when we meet God? 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Or 1 Corinthians 13, 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, that is when we're with God, face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. When we meet God, we will know him in a way that is far more abundant than we ever could in this life. And yet, I would say, even with the full revelation of God and God's presence, that doesn't mean that even, that even then we'll fully comprehend him. He is the infinite God. My theology professor was actually saying the other day, what, what is heaven, what is one of the, the chief activities in heaven? It's going to be just learning more and more about God. Forever and ever, we will be pursuing God and his glorious character. We will be seeking, we will be finding, we will be enjoying like an explorer who delights in encountering a grand new vista in a new land. So will we. But just as that explorer then proceeds further onward to discover the next wonder, so we will with God. And we'll never run out of, of new glories to see in God. This is the reward to which believers can look forward. But back to the main topic today. In this life, for us to know who God is, we must go to God's special revelation, what he's actually given us, the Bible. So, what does the Bible tell us about God? Well, we'll need many more lessons to answer that question, even begin to answer that question. But today, we're just going to start with two passages. So, the first one I want you to turn to with me is Exodus chapter 34. Look at Exodus 34, and we're going to look at verses 4 to 9. If we're looking for places in the Bible that tell us what God is like, who God is, one of the best places for us to go is one of those places where God himself tells us who he is and what he's like. And that's what we, we find in this passage. Let me remind you of the context of this section. God's chosen people, Israel, have entered into covenant with God at Mount Sinai, and they've sworn to keep God's law. 
But immediately after doing this, Israel breaks God's law and covenant by making and worshiping a golden calf. God, seeing this, says he's going to destroy Israel, all of Israel. But Moses intercedes and he pleads with God for the sake of God's own name not to destroy this wicked people. And God heeds Moses' request. And in the ensuing conversation, Moses asks God to continue to travel in the presence of the people. God again agrees. To which an overwhelmed Moses asks God to show Moses God's glory. Now, turn back to just Exodus 33 for just a second. Exodus 33 verses 18 to 20. Actually, probably on the same page in your Bibles. Exodus 33, 18 to 20. And listen to the way that the conversation proceeds. Exodus 33, verses 18 to 20. Then Moses said, I pray you show me your glory. And he, that's God, said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then Yahweh said, behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about, while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take, take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not, or my face shall not be seen. Now notice here how God tells Moses that Moses cannot handle the full glory of God. Moses can only see a brief glimpse of God's afterglow, as it were. Otherwise, Moses could not live. Notice also that God says that not only will God make his goodness pass by Moses, but God will proclaim the name of Yahweh to Moses. In other words, there's going to be sight and sound. There will be video and audio revelation. Moses is going to see a glimpse of God's glory, but also hear God explain God's own name. Now let's see how this happens. Exodus 34 now, verses 4 to 9. God said he was going to do a certain thing. Let's see what he does. So he, that's Moses, cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, as Yahweh had commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hand. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of Yahweh. Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. He said, If now I found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, 
and take us as your own possession. Notice some details of this passage with me. Notice what God says about himself. He says he is Yahweh. He is the eternal, the self-sufficient, the self-existing one, the covenant-keeping one. That's a special name for God. He is also God, Ael, the mighty one, the powerful one. He is compassionate and gracious. He's moved to love in his heart and then manifest that love in kind and undeserving acts. He's slow to anger. Though he has the right to be angry instantly, he nevertheless is patient. He says he's abounding in loving kindness and truth. And as you probably know, the term loving kindness in the New American Standard is a translation of that one Hebrew word that you should all learn. I think I mentioned it before. It's the, verb, it's the word chesed. Chesed. We could translate that term. Other translations use some of these phrases. Steadfast love, or loyal love, or covenant love, or loving kindness. God says he is abounding. He is overflowing with loyal love. Loving kindness to the members of his covenant. He also says he abounds in truth, overflowing with truth. There's so much truth in God that it cannot be contained. He also says he keeps loving kindness for thousands. He generously pours out his covenant love on men. And one of the manifestations of that, God says he forgives iniquity, trespasses, and sins. He is merciful to even the most evil offenders against him. He is more than willing to forgive. Yet, God says, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. His overwhelming love does not crowd out, contradict, or diminish his total justice and his total holiness. For those who deserve to be punished for their sins, they will be judged. And God explains further, he visits the iniquity of fathers on later generations. This is to say, God's holy judgments are severe. He is no wrist-slapping God. He does not wink at sin. His wrath is profound. And in this life, it affects multiple generations. As an aside, the exact interpretation of this final quality and what's explained here is, is somewhat difficult. It sounds like God's saying that he punishes children for the sins of fathers, but God makes quite clear in other Old Testament passages that he does no such thing. Ezekiel 18, for instance, God says, The soul that sins will die, and a son will not suffer for his father's sin, or not be punished for his father's sin. So that's not what that verse, that's not what this verse is saying here. But what does it, what is it communicating to us? The statement appears to mean either that, and a number of interpreters take this view, God will pursue and punish iniquity as long as it lasts. If it's passed down from generation to generation, a father teaches his son evil, then God will pursue that iniquity, and both will be judged. Through multiple generations, he will keep pursuing that iniquity and judging that iniquity. He is tenacious in his judgment. Alternatively, it could be that when God judges one generation for its evil, that judgment will be so severe, so full of wrath and holiness, that the effects will reach even far-flung descendants. And whichever meaning is meant, both of these are true. 
and they're evident in the Old Testament, especially Israel's history. I mean, consider when God judged Adam, that is something that we all feel the effects of. Or where God judged Israel several times, that's something we all feel, or not we all, but many in Israel uh, felt the effects of that, even if they were not direct participants. Anyways, here God, in these various statements, reveals some of his attributes. And notice Moses' response to God's declarations. Moses bows quickly to worship, and he prays to God. He prays for God to be merciful and to continue to go with Israel, to have his presence be with Israel despite Israel's wickedness. Now, this is a foundational passage in Scripture. Many other biblical passages, especially in the Old Testament, refer back to this revelation or to revelation that says the same thing as this passage, which makes me think many scriptures are set to song. Someone really should set the words of this passage to song because it's such a, um, an important revelation of God's character and his attributes. But who is God? We learn a number of fundamental truths in this passage. We could summarize it most basically. God is a God full of generous love and loyalty. God is a God full of forgiveness and mercy. But God is also a God of full holiness, justice, and wrath. But how can these all be true at the same time? How can God be full of love and full of anger together? Don't they contradict? Well, not at all, because God says that they're there. Moreover, we can, we can see how this works. God is a righteous king. Just as a good king loves and will provide for his own subjects, so a good king also hates and will destroy all enemies, all rebels, all criminals. And yet even to these enemies, God says, he is willing to show mercy. He forgives sins and trespasses. So how can one go from being a hated enemy of God under his just and righteous anger to being a protected and beloved subject, even a son or daughter of God. Now that is the great story of the Bible. That is the good news. That's the gospel. And we're going to trace that story through our study of scripture. But of course, you already know what is the ultimate answer to that question. How does one go from being an enemy of God to a beloved son? A way to experience God's mercy is through his undeserved provision of salvation, his son, Jesus Christ. We are all rebels against God and followers of our own way. We will experience the profound and holy wrath of God for our sin. But God made provision for rebellious man by sending his own son, Jesus, to live a righteous life, die an innocent death in the place of sinners, and rise again from the dead. The good news is that whoever will give up his sins and believe in the Son of God as Lord and Savior will have his sins totally forgiven and be clothed with God's own righteousness. That believing sinner will never experience God's wrath, but will instead receive eternal life and forevermore will know only the love of the one who abounds in chesed. And this promise is held out to even every one of us listening today. So we see a profound revelation of God's character here in Exodus 34. But don't miss out on the other great lesson of this passage. We not only see the specific revelation of God's attributes, but we also see addressed, really, the purpose of man. 
Many of you know that famous statement from the Westminster Catechism, question and answer, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Moses asked to see God's glory and God granted Moses that request. And what is Moses' response once he sees that glory? God, please don't take your glorious presence away from us. You see, Moses understood something. And it's the same thing that we all must understand. And that is, we need God. Not just what God can give us. We need God himself. We need to behold his glory. God himself. Not God's gifts are what are intended to satisfy man forever. As long as you seek satisfaction in something else besides God, not only will you not be satisfied, but you actually sin against God. He is everything that is lovely. If you say there's something lacking in God or you can find something else for your satisfaction, you blaspheme God. Because he is all that is good and that is great. Consider Jesus' own prayer. In John 17, Jesus prays on behalf of all his believing disciples. In John 17, 24, Jesus says this. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. So consider that. What is Jesus' prayer for you as a Christian? It's that you might be with him and behold his glory forever. Now, why is that? Because Jesus is needy of your company? No, but because you are needy of his glory. And he, in his grace, is going to give it to you. So, a few questions now, reflecting on this passage. Number one, do you let God tell you who he is through his Bible? Or do you let your own fleshly feelings and thoughts tell you who God is? Two, are there times that you have doubted God's love, God's mercy, God's holiness? If so, how are you going to deal with this passage? God declares who he is. Are you going to contradict God? Three, have you yet come to see that you need to behold God in his glory? Not just once, but continually. And if you have, what are you doing so that you may behold his glory? Do you expose yourself to God's word? Do you expose yourself to the fellowship of God's people? Do you serve the Lord? Do you exercise faith in God? Do you put your faith into practice? These are all ways that we behold and make known the glory of the Lord. If you're not smitten with the, the Lord's glory, which seductive idol has your attention? Where has your gaze been diverted so that you no longer can appreciate the beauty of the Lord? If you find yourself loving something else more than God, then remember what God says in his word. Exodus 20, verses 3 to 6. This is part of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. 
for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So I ask you, will you believe the Lord, cast away your idols, so that you may receive the gift of God himself? So we've seen one profound instance of God revealing himself in the Bible. This morning, I'd also like to look at one other instance with you. And this one is going to be in Psalm 90. Turn to Psalm 90, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 6. Back in the Psalms, let me give you the context of this psalm. You may notice as you turn there, a little description at the top. But this is a psalm that is explicitly said, the only psalm that is said explicitly to come from Moses. So this is a very old psalm. It was composed before the people of Israel entered the promised land. I recall that the psalms are prayer poems or prayer songs. This one was given for the people of Israel to sing. And it is a song of petition to turn, or a song of petition to God that God might turn with kindness and mercy again to his wicked and undeserving people. Actually, the topic, the subject sounds very similar to what Moses was just dealing with in the passage in Exodus 34. We don't deserve it, God, but please show us kindness. Now, a key theme in this psalm has to do with a strong contrast between God and man. And we're going to see this contrast presented throughout, or the contrast is presented throughout the psalm, but it's introduced in verses 1 to 6. And it's those verses that we're going to look at together now. Look at Psalm 90, verses 1 to 6. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, before the mountains were born, for you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood, they fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. Notice now the great contrast in this passage between God and man. On the one hand, Moses tells us that God is the creator of everything in the world. Even the mountains that seem so permanent, seem that they've been around forever. Moses reminds us God created those mountains. Those mountains had a beginning, and their beginning was God. Indeed, Moses further says, God himself is from everlasting to everlasting. And what does that mean? What could it mean except that God is eternal? From one forever to another forever, you are God, Moses says. As we often say, God has always existed from eternity past to eternity future. Or to say the same thing another way, God is not bound by time. There is no time for God like there is for man. He is outside of time. He transcends time. Just as he cannot be bound by space, neither can God be bound by time. Consider what it means for God to be eternally in the past. That's so hard to fathom. 
but it's something like God is currently present in the past, just as he is right now in the future, and just as he is right now in the present. He's in every one of those. God does not progress like man does. He always is. He is somehow able to be in every time at once and at the same time in no time at all. How do we wrap our minds around it? Well, you know we can't. We're finite beings. We're not like that. But Moses says this is who God is from everlasting to everlasting. And he further illustrates this wholly other aspect of God's time using a simile. Moses says, a thousand years are like yesterday to you, O God. Once they're past, it's just like yesterday. Or even a watch in the night. What's a watch in the night? Well, it's just the length of a soldier's guard duty during the night. You know, the soldiers would rotate, always have to have somebody on guard, but the soldiers need to get their sleep, so they take shifts. And one shift was about three hours. Moses says, that's like what a thousand years are to you, God. It's like you look back and it was just the previous shift. It was just a couple hours ago. Moses says, when you consider time in God's perspective, it's wholly different from what you experience. Now, you're probably reminded of that verse in the New Testament given by Peter, where he says something very similar. 2 Peter 3, 8, Peter writes, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. So it's not just that things go really slow, or things seem to go really slowly for God. They can also seem to go really fast. Thousand years are also like one day, and one day is like a thousand years. How can those both be true? Well, it's because time for God is not like time for us. I think the way to describe it is to say that God is not bound by time. He's very different from us. He is eternal. Just as an aside, we'll probably come back to this later on, but some see this passage in Psalm 90 and this verse in 2 Peter 3 as giving a basis for believing in an old earth. They say, well, for God, a day is like a thousand years. So when it refers to six days in Genesis 1, it's really talking about 6,000 years or more. Genesis 1 is talking about God days. Well, we'll have more to say about the issue of the age of the earth in upcoming lessons while we talk about creation. But let me just give you briefly a few reasons why that interpretation of these verses can't hold up. Number one, as we're already seeing, the original intent of these passages is not to define God days. As we've just said, God doesn't have any days at all. To define a God day would be impossible since God is eternal. We could never experience time the way that God experiences it. Number two, even if there were such a thing as a God day, neither of these passages seek to define a God day because they both use the term like. They do not say that a day for God is a thousand years, but it's like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like three hours. That is to say, it's very different. These, this crucial word like shows that these things are not equivalent. This is just making a point. Time with God is not like time with man. And thirdly, even if we were to accept the concept of a God day, and even if you could define what a God day is, there is no reason to say from the context in Genesis 1 that Moses is reporting God days. I mean, what would be the use in speaking to the original audience in such terms, in such terms since they are humans and not God? They don't live in God days. They live in human days. 
And Moses gives no indication in Genesis 1 that he's speaking of such divine days. So why would we infer it? Rather, Moses gives extensive evidence that he's speaking of regular 24-hour days. The real reason for such an inference of these divine, extremely long days is, of course, not because the Bible says it, but because other authorities are pressuring us to reinterpret it that way. Man's scientific consensus, his conclusions today, they contradict the Bible. And so we feel pressured to make the Bible agree with them. But we'll come back, as I say, we'll come back to that issue later on. We're not talking about, these passages are not defining for us God days. Anyways, so Moses in Psalm 90 reminds us that God's nature, especially his eternality, is very different from ours. But then notice verse 3. Verse 3 shows us that God is sovereign. God is the one who commands commands man saying, return to dust. Notice, it doesn't say that God allows man to return to dust. He actually causes it. He turns man back into dust, it says. God is in complete control. His commands cannot be contradicted. He has total power, even over life and death. He is the one that's making things happen. Despite man's apparent strength and man's great effort to live, God is the one who sets the limit on each man's life. And no one can disobey the command to return to dust. So this is who we see who God is on the one hand. God is creator. God is eternal. God is sovereign. What, on the other hand, is man? Well, man is part of the creation of God. Man is limited in his power. He's unable to contradict God. And then there's verse 5. Notice in verse 5, it starts, in the beginning, it mentions the pronoun them. Now, first, it sounds like this verse is talking about the 1,000 years that was mentioned in verse 4. But if we use a thousand years to inform the rest of verse 5, it doesn't really make sense. God sweeps away the years like a flood. They fall asleep. How does a year fall asleep? They spring up like grass and then fade away in the evening. That doesn't sound like what a thousand years do. So them most likely has a different antecedent. It's a little different for us uh, in terms of expectations coming from English, but them probably refers to something else. And what makes more sense in the context is that them refers to men, children of men, going back to verse 3. It's men who are easily swept away by God like a flood. It's men who are like grass that grows and fades in the, or grows in the morning and fades in the evening. That is to say, men, talking about men and women here, not talking just about males, mankind is extremely transient. And this is something that the scripture reminds us of continually. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 and 7, starting in 6c. Isaiah 46 and 7, All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of Yahweh blows upon it, surely the people are grass. Or James 4, James 4, verses 13 to 14. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Are you seeing the contrast that Moses is presenting us between God and man? God is creator. 
man is created. God is sovereign. Man is subject to God's power. God is eternal. Man is extremely transient. What's the point of all this? Why bring these things back to our minds, Moses, in this song? Well, I think it's for a couple reasons. First of all, it's to give God's worshipers a proper humility. This is the same lesson that Job had to learn, right? If you start feeling uppity, you want God to give you some answers as to what he does, you want to pass judgment on God, remember, remember who you are. God is not like you. Don't try to pass judgment on God as if he were your equal. He's very different from you. He is far above you. You've got to remember that. These reminders of God's nature in contrast to our own should give us humility. But second, these reminders give God's worshipers a proper perspective on life. If life is so short, as Moses reminds us, then what should we be valuing? What should we be pursuing? Should we really be clinging to the things of the world? Should we really be sinning to obtain that which is going to pass away so quickly? Or should we focus on God and what is eternal? That's why verse 12 says in this same chapter, Psalm 90, verse 12, So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. So there are these first two reasons, humility, wisdom. But third, this contrast helps us, or should cause us to beseech God for help, to be dependent on God. When we see how limited we are, and how unlimited and powerful God is. That encourages us to go to him in prayer. That encourages us to cry out to him for deliverance. That encourages us to seek him to provide our needs. And to wait upon him to do what we cannot. These are all necessary things for us to remember. That's why this song is so valuable. So, brothers and sisters, what is your response to Moses' contrast? Have you realized just how different God is from you? Do you see how high above he is? Are you humbled on seeing how God is so transcendent to you? Does it change the priorities of your life? And does it cause you to cry out to him as the only savior, the only sustainer, so in summary today, we've seen a, a little of what God is like. We've seen from Exodus 34 that God is loving, merciful, holy, wrathful. And we've seen from Psalm 90 that God is very different from us. Yes, we do share that his, some of his communicable attributes. We are made in his image, but he's also very different from us. He is the creator. He is eternal and he is sovereign. Now, we'll learn, we will learn much more about God's attributes as we continue through our study of the Bible. But again, remember this fundamental truth. If we want to know who God is, we must go to and rely on the Bible. Now, what comments or questions do you have based on today's lesson? I'm not seeing any hands. 
Oh, wait, is that a hand, Roy? Sorry, Roy, I didn't catch every word what you said, but I think you're asking about um, Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians where he says that the things of God's truth cannot be understood by one who's not saved because they're spiritually discerned. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a really good question. Part of our understanding that statement accurately is um, one of the, one of the terms there spiritually or he's not I can't remember which one. But the the idea of spiritually discerning the truth of God as it is revealed in the scriptures has the sense of judging a right. Actually, my theology teacher was just talking about this the other day. It's not that those who don't believe in God can't understand what the Bible says. In one sense, you know, it's kind of a strange phenomenon, but there are several or there are many commentaries on the Bible that are written by people who actually don't believe in God, who don't have a saving relationship with God. And you might think to yourself, well, what use is that commentary? But actually, they point out some really helpful things. They're able to understand, you know, this is exactly what Paul says in this particular section. Here's his argument, and here's the reason why, based on the grammar and this. And you think like, well, how could they understand that if they don't believe in God? Well, you can understand the nuts and bolts of Scripture. You can even understand what it says, but you don't believe it. In that sense, you, you can never understand it. You, you look at it, and you come away with the same conclusion that the Bible says the unbelievers do. They judge it foolishness. Say, yeah, that's what Paul said, but I don't believe it. Or, yeah, that's that's what Jesus said, but that's not what my heart testifies as true. So they can't, an unbeliever, when he looks at the scriptures, even though he can understand, in a sense, what it says, he can't really understand. He can know what it says, but he can't know it because he doesn't believe it. it, it it's that light that is just going against the darkness, and he resists it so much. Now, bringing that back to our discussion today, this is one of the reasons why I said man has this problem with understanding who God really is. And the problem is not just, well, he doesn't have revelation, but it's also that the revelation he does receive, he resists, he suppresses. Whether it's in, it's the testimony in creation or even the special revelation of God's word. So not only does God need to provide us with this special revelation, he also needs to open our hearts and our eyes to judge it aright.
And we will never do that apart from God's merciful work. We will continue to say, you know, that's nice, but I don't, I don't want that. You know, interesting argument. Jesus seems like a good person, but I just don't believe it. That's what I'd say about that, at least right now. <laughs> Other questions or comments? Yes, Steve. Mm, in terms of sufficiently knowing about God? Yeah, that's a good question. We know that... Hmm. Well, let's say this, first of all. We don't know completely what the state of God's revelation was before certain elements of Scripture were written. Like, how did Job know the things that he knew about God? What were Adam and Eve telling their descendants? What was the knowledge of God before and after the flood? So there's an element to that that we don't understand. But I think the answer is, and I'm kind of just thinking off the fly here, I think the answer is that God deemed that certain amount and certain type of revelation was sufficient for each period of time. He, his plan was to unfold more and more revelation, but he says, for now, this is sufficient for you to know about me. So by the time of Moses, or the time before Moses, he said, whatever revelation I provided is sufficient for you. And whenever Moses wrote his books, he says, Israel, this is sufficient for you. And as we as we go more and more through the scriptures, then God has deemed that what we have now in, in, the, in the completed Bible is sufficient for us in this age. Now, this does not mean that this is the end of God's revelation. We actually even hear in the scriptures that in the tribulation period and afterwards, there's going to be more revelation. There's going to be prophets. There's going to be visions. There's going to be other things. But for now, this is God's sufficient revelation. He says, you have no need of anything else. And that's why we can even point to verses like uh, the one in 2 Timothy 3. This is what God has given us, is able to make the man complete, adequate, prepared for every good work. Now, that's my thought on that question right now. That's, that's, that's a good question. Before we end, I do want to point out a few other application questions for you to consider. We're not going to take the time to go through these questions, but I do want you to think about them. More, um, more meditation on what God's word in the real world looks like, even as we consider the revelation of God's attributes. Number one, please think about this. Maybe talk about it with your family or talk about it with other people in the church. Which attributes of God do people and even Christians often... Uh, Doubt, ignore, or deny. And why? What is it about certain attributes that we have trouble with? And why do we? So that's one for you to consider. Number two, how would you answer someone who, because of the great sufferings in the world and in his own life, concluded that God must not exist? Now, I think there are several ways to answer that question, but I'd ask you to think about that. And then number three, how can you praise God in prayer and in song for each of his attributes? Sometimes we're really good about praising the Lord in certain attributes, but we never praise the Lord for his other attributes. Are they not lovely? Are they somehow not noble in God? 
And they all deserve praise. They are all part of his perfections. So do we praise him for them? How can we do that more? So I want you to think about that as well. If you have other questions or comments based on today's lesson or even questions about these application questions, I'd love to hear from you. You can always email me and I'll get back to you. But that's it for this week. Next week, we're going to continue talking about God and specifically deal with the question, how do I know that God exists? Let's close in prayer. Our great God, we are humbled by the revelation that you have given us. Because even though this is what you've given is not all the revelation that there could be about you. You are infinite. You are unsearchable. And yet you have made yourself known to us in a sufficient way. In a wonderful way. But even what you've shown us, God, has shown us that, wow, you are so far above us. You are different from us. And even in the ways that we're similar, you are far greater in each one of those aspects. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your justice. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that we don't have to experience the wrath that is required by your justice because of Jesus Christ. But Lord, every way of yours is right and good. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, not only by giving us the scripture, but by opening our hearts to believe it. We would never have believed it unless you had acted first. Even though it is totally reasonable, it's totally, there's no excuse for our not believing it. Our sin is such, God, that we would never unless you've opened our eyes. Thank you for that unfathomable mercy. I pray, God, if there are any who are listening today who have not yet experienced that, God, that you would open their eyes and they would humble themselves before you and put their trust in you as Lord and Savior. God, I pray that you bless the rest of the service at Calvary today and continue to build up your people, build up your church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you guys. See you next week.